I'm Leo Igwe, and you are listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 85, and I'm your host, Yelena Levin, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Bokman. Всем привет! Hey son, hey son! And we also have a special guest on the show today, and her name is Nicola Throp, and she is a director of the QED conference, the Question Explore Discover conference from Manchester. Welcome, Nicola. Hello. Hi. If I'm not mistaken, you are here to tell us all about the exciting QED conference that's about to happen. Yeah, I am. Excellent. So I guess, uh, when exactly is it happening? Uh, tell us a little bit about the conference itself, just, you know the outline. <laughs> sure. So QED this year is the 14th and the 15th of October in Manchester in the UK. And so that's, that's the main event. But we also have a fringe event on the Thursday. And there is a Skeptic Camp that runs on the Friday. Both of those events are totally free to attend for anyone that wants to make a really long weekend of it. Um, if you've not been to QED before, it's two full days of lots and lots of lovely, skeptical, interesting topics. We have 12 mainstay speakers, and we have running alongside those, lots of panels, podcasts, and some other event spaces with some, perhaps some workshops. And we have um, a big event on a Saturday night where we have um, some entertainment, we have a gala dinner. Well, it's the seventh, seventh QED this year, and it's a really, really friendly event. I'm sure that both of you will attest to that. <laughs> um, Really great atmosphere, and um, people have a lot of fun. It's not stuffy or too academic or anything like that. We want to uh, be able to be as accessible as we can to everybody who's interested. We also have um, a crash as well uh, for the event. So people, if they have children, they can use the crash facilities over the weekend. So, like I said, we try and make it as accessible as possible for everybody who wants to come and have a great time. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, me and Pontus were both attended several QEDs, and I think once you start, I don't think you can ever stop going because uh, of <laughs> how great the event is and how much you can learn and the people you can meet there, and it's just wonderful. I, I always um, leave QED so inspired and so hyped up on new information, new friends, and it's it's great. Yeah, it's really a conference that is the most professionally run I've ever attended. And even though you're not pro you're not professionals, but it's still fantastically. You think of everything. There's a crash. There is everything is sorted out. And I, I talked to Michael last year and talked about this little magnetic thing that you have on the ID thing that you have a, on your oh, over yeah. your neck just to make sure that it doesn't open unnecessarily when you walk around it's you know the the amount of detail that you think of is is, uh, is fantastic yeah well my well my colleague mike hall who i run the event with he's 
really the, the great person to think of all the attention to detail. So the booklet has all the event information in, also doubles as the name badge. So that's where the little magnet comes in. So you, yeah. you have your name badge around your neck, but it's also the event booklet. So just little things like that to make the attendees experience more pleasurable and just very easy. So we're very lucky to have him in, in that <laughs> regard. He's always thinking about, you know, well, what, what would what would I want yeah. if I was an attendee? What would I want? What would make my life better? Yeah. I remember last uh, last year, I think actually you've outdone yourself and, and you had so many different <laughs> events happening at the same time. I wanted to be at least in two, sometimes three and four places at once. <laughs> and it was like, oh no, look at all these wonderful things happening at the same time. So. Well, we, we, do, we do try and give people difficult choices because we want to put on some really quality content. So, yeah. you know, that's the idea that it, it isn't, if, if, you, if you don't like what's on in one room, there's something mm -hmm. else for you somewhere else. You're not that twiddling your thumbs in an empty mm -hmm. space. There's something for everybody. Or if you just want a break, you know, you, you can do that. I think hopefully the content is, you know, that's, that's what we're working towards. The content is the most important part. But then obviously there's all the other little attendee experience. Um, issues that we have to think of and try and make that as, as pleasurable as possible. But if you do miss things, obviously we record the majority of we record um, majority of the the event. So if you do miss something, there probably will be a point where we can release that footage or recording, and so people can catch up even if they miss yeah. them during the weekend. So, so do you, how many tracks do you have this year? Do you know, you have of course the 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 main thing with the main speech, and then you have a panel. Tell us a little bit about how it's organised. Yeah, so we have, over the two days, we have 12 main stage speakers. So there's, there's one big main room, so that's where all the, the main guests will be. But then we'll have a panel track, so that's a bit more where, you know, you can have a bit of a normal discussion where there's multiple people on a panel um, discussing a um, topical issue. We'll also have, well, we always intend to have um, a workshop space where people can get hands-on with a certain issue. So last year, for example, we had an investigative journalist, Marion Jones, who was teaching people skills in that area. We also have a room that's dedicated to podcasts. So if you want to come and hear your favourite podcast live, um, that is where you can do that. Um, we also um, have some additional spaces that uh, we haven't revealed as yet. So um, I don't want to... Yeah, we've, got, we've got more things up our sleeves to announce. So, <laughs> so I don't want to give too much away. But yeah, there's, there's multiple things going on. And we have... Um, some additional announcements to make for the Saturday night. So, so there's lots more to come. So um, people need to kind of keep in touch with um, us on Facebook and Twitter um, to, to watch out for the, for the next set of announcements. So Nicola, could you please uh, tell us a little bit who is coming there, who, who the speakers are and, and what we can look forward to? Sure. So this year we have the fantastic Dave Anik. If you came last year, you will have seen Dave perform on the Saturday night and also do a magic workshop. So Dave very kindly agreed to MC the event this year, which I think will be fantastic. Mm -hmm. But for the rest of the event, we've got a, we've, we've announced all our 12 main stage speakers now, which you can find on our website. Uh, we're really looking forward to, to the to the speakers. We've got a really great mix this year. So just some of the, some of the people that we have, we have um, Helen Zersky, who I'm sure a lot of people will know. She is a very well-known physicist. Um, we have Simon Singh, who's talking about um, the Enigma machine, and he's actually bringing one with him. He, he owns one. We have uh, Tim O'Brien, who's an astrophysicist. He works for Jodrell Bank in the UK. We have Carol Tavrish, she's a psychologist in the US. We have Sophie Wilson, who's a computer scientist, and she designed the she, she was co-designed the little chip that basically was in every computer and mobile phone. So we've got a really 
varied mix of speakers and I think it's going to be great. Absolutely. Amazing. And we do still have some tickets available. So if you would like to buy a ticket, please go to our website. Um, it's a very, very simple form to fill in. Uh, courtesy of Mike Hall, who I mentioned before, with the attention to detail that extends to the ease of which you can buy a QED ticket. So. Excellent. And can you just tell us the uh, website address just for the listeners? Sure. It's, um, it's just very simple. It's qedcon.org. All right. Great. Excellent. Fantastic. We can't wait to be there, can't we, Elena? I seriously, honestly, this is like highlight, one of the highlights of my year. I love QED. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Nicola. Say hello to the <laughs> others right, for us. Yep. We yep. will do. Thank you. All right. Bye. Ciao. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 All right, then. Let's uh, get straight into it, then, guys. Um, let's start with uh, this week in skepticism segment, which me, myself, and I present... <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to it. So yes, today I want to talk about uh, something that happened back in 1956 on the night of the 13th of August. It's an interesting event. Well, I'd, I'd say it's, it's, it's a serious event that had been called Lake and Heath and Bentwet Waters Incident. Basically, what this was, was a series of radar and visual contacts with UFOs that took place over an airbase in eastern England. And it involved both the RAF and USAF personnel, so the American personnel uh, as well, the um, Air Force personnel. The incident since has gained some prominence in literature of ufology and the popular media. I have read a little bit about the incident and what it comes down to was the fact that several eyewitnesses at the base witnessed um, unidentified flying objects uh, and lights in the sky that were then con- later on confirmed by various uh, equipment, uh, recordings, uh, radars, etc., and have not been completely explained. So there's still a little bit of a mystery around what that potentially could be. And, of course, the scientists um, are erring on a cautious side and they're saying these were just, um, you know, natural events or a reflection of the light of something or the other. And <laughs> you probably can imagine the other side, um, people who may be the proponents of UFOs and who'd like to believe that the the truth is out there and uh, they're watching us, think that they were genuine alien contacts or alien uh, sp- spacecrafts. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, the, who, who can tell? Fortunately or unfortunately, this, because it's an unexplained event, it's been used by the UFO supporters groups a lot as a proof that we've the Earth has been visited by the aliens. I think I'm, I'm with this with the other camp, with the scientific camp that that says, okay, well, we can't really explain it yet, but th- th- there must be a reasonable explanation of some sorts. Because surely th- this couldn't have been the only uh, incident that ever happened of aliens visiting us. We would have probably had other occurrences. Mm. But I don't know. You see, I've never really, I don't know about you, Pontus, but I've never really was a great believer in to, to uh, UFOs and, and alien contact. I think if, if aliens are out there, they'll, they'll know better than to get in touch with the Earth. <laughs> yeah. What about, what about you? No, I, I really am fascinated, always have been by, by UFOs, really. 
Yeah. But never been very convinced. But I would really yeah. like it to be true. And actually, we could give a plug to Be Reasonable, episode 44, for people who right. want to look it up. Mm-hmm. I was, Because I listened to that today, actually, not knowing what you were going to talk about. Uh, and uh, Michael Marshall was interviewing uh, a guy called Kevin Randall from the US. He is a UFO researcher. A very reasonable guy, actually. The only difference is that as long as he thinks there's something unexplained, he says you can't rule out aliens. And, uh, well, that, you know, just because it's unexplained, it doesn't have to be aliens. And he agreed on that, if, if you will. But, but, but still, I, being a skeptic, I have the more pragmatic approach to say, okay, unless we know what it is, we just don't know what it is. And that's where I stop. I don't want to speculate that it's aliens just because I can't tell what the thing was about. Yeah, it's... I Yeah, I remain, I remain skeptical as well. I mean, look, sure, there's a chance that there's um, another uh, intelligent life out there. I d- don't rule it out at all. But I don't understand why they have to be so conspicuous. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Why do they have to... like? They, they visit us and they're like, there's only like a gl- like a tiny bit of light or st- it's only revealed to a few people on earth. Why are they not being more open? You know what I mean? So. Yeah. And, um, the thing about the, um, uh, Lake and Heath and Bentwaters incident is that a lot of the witnesses and the accounts of the event happened way after the actual event. So. You know, years later, a witness would emerge. And it always, I always feel a little bit uneasy about that. Why would, sure. you know, why would, would 15, 20 years later somebody say, oh, okay, hold on a second. I know something about this. Now I remember. Always, yeah, okay. yeah, it always feels a bit backwards and it always feels like somebody is like, um, desperate for media attention because of course newspapers and, and magazines are jumping on an opportunity to report something sensational like this. So, um, you know, and I know that it's a little bit cheesy, but um, I want to say that if names like Daily Mail are mentioned in the, in the articles, I you know I have to just yeah <laughs> you know we'll remain skeptical and open minded and absolutely open to the possibility that there is life out there, um, yeah. but maybe not in this particular instance. The, you, we all know that the, the, your memory and your perception is not unbiased it's always tainted by what you think or you try to make some sort of story out of your fragmented memories and you come up with a story and you believe it it's not lying no absolutely and we've talked about it several times about how fallible our brains are and how we have to keep remembering that memory isn't like a recording it's not, it's not no. like a cassette recording or a disc recording. It, it's it it changes and t- t- shapes things in the way in the brain to make s- sense for us. And um, a lot of the memories we have are essentially, well, they're not real, unfortunately. No. <laughs> or unfortunately. So there we go. It's a uh, it's an interesting one this time. So um, I'm I'm all open for for alien contact. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I would love it. <laughs> there you go. Um, and now let's uh, move along to the news items from around the Europe. All right. So let's start with the UK. And this is a follow-up from an older, uh, really wrong thing that I have covered on episode 51 about a, uh, a man from Beijing or originally called Xiao Hongqi, if my 
Chinese don't let me down. He is now, he, well, the reason I talked to him uh, on episode 51 was that he performed his slap therapy. Uh, do you remember that, uh, Jelena? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it was resulting in the death of a 71 year old lady with diabetes. Yeah. Uh, and the reason was not that he beat her to death, actually. That's, nobody's t- said that. But the thing mm. was that she was afraid of needles, which is not a good thing if you suffer from diabetes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So he, she didn't want to take a sh- her shot. So she actually paid Mr. Xiao and two of his cronies to slap her around, <laughs> according to an allegedly ancient treatment called, and now is another Chinese uh, thing that I will probably mispronounce, Paida La Jin, maybe. But if you slap people, according to this Paida La Jin, if you, if you slap people, uh, and you should do it so you get some nice bruises on the skin as well, you shouldn't be too gentle, that would uh, apparently correct the cha of the pa- patient. Don't ask me what cha is. Mm. But that would help to drive out the, quote, toxins, unquote, from the body. When I reported on him, uh, he was being investigated for manslaughter in the UK. I don't think that has led to any legal procedures. But now this same guy, Xiao Hongqi, is being extradited to Australia, where he is to face uh, a similar allegation concerning a six-year-old boy who died after being brought to a self-healing conference in Sydney held by by Mr. Xiao in 2015. So uh, we will see how that ends up. Uh, And the common thing is that this six-year-old boy was also suffering from diabetes, but the parents of the boy didn't really want to... They had some other thing uh, about that. This boy died as well. And, and probably both, both the the young boy and uh, the seventy one year old lady died not from the beating, but from not taking their shots. Um, as there's something I wanted to just briefly mention that I've uh, come across on GVOP website um, on their blog. They are the German skeptics. Uh, website. Um, actually, when I translated f- from Eng- uh, from German to English, it, it, it's, it's a decent translation. So for those who don't speak any German, it still can work. And it's an article about a fake news generator website called Paul Newsman website. Uh, plain words there for those who know the actor Paul Newman. Hmm. It's a very well presented website where everybody who speaks German and understands German and can write uh, can create uh, a free fake uh, news article that is then available uh, but only uh, for a very limited time and only five for five views. So you can send the link to five friends and they can click on it and read it and then it disappears. Um, if you want the article to stay longer, you have to register, and there's like a small fee to pay. Now, they do this in order to prevent 
uh, long-term damage because of course people well they, they they can write some damaging things and of course they can take advantage of this service like this uh, and something that is designed to be just a prank and to prove a point can all of a sudden become uh, a viral news and, and something that, that possibly potentially can ruin somebody's life I still see some gray areas and but but what they're saying uh, that's that they want to take part in this debate of how important the role of media is and the the um how easy it is to create fake news and what are policies in place and maybe even try to in a way educate the readers but i mean knowing how easy fake news spread on facebook i don't know if it's a helpful service because it just adds more to the to the bucket of the fake news and uh, when they were asked about the damage control in case somebody wants to report something let's say racist or islamophobic the they vet all their articles and they get in touch if if you doing it free is not as easy but if you are then registered um, and you want to get a wider sort of uh, spread of your article fake articles then they can see the contact details and they can stop those uh, from from being published and also get in touch with the person who writes the article i don't know i guess as an educational tool it could be a good thing but also on the other side it can just make matters worse and add oil to the fire um so, yeah, I, I, not sure, not sure. No, me neither. I mean, it's a very, very, very easy to put a, a lie out there and it's almost impossible to make it go away. This reminds me of, of a quote that is usually attributed to Mark Twain, but I, I, it's debated if it was him or not. A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. I, th I think it's very adequate, no matter who's, who said it. I, I think once you put something out there, yeah. it, it's almost impossible to take it away. Yeah, and it doesn't matter how hard the developers of this website try to indicate in the article that, that users create that it's a fake. I think some people are just not, they don't care. Exactly. And <laughs> since they're, they're just gonna, they're just gonna say, I saw this on the internet. Yeah. So, and you know, take a picture of the website, whatever. There's all sorts of means to keep it, you know. Yeah. And since they're charging for, for the, the statement to be there longer, I don't think their, uh, uh, in t intentions are all altruistic. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and uh, they, they have, uh, when I read about the charging bit, they, they, they have mentioned that it's not that much and they're only making, um, they, they're covering their, uh, the hosting of the website costs. Um, oh, maybe. Making millions. But I still believe we need less of that, not more. Fully agree. Fully agree. All right, let's go to Ireland. The Health and Safety Executive National Immunization Office that's quite a mouthful, yeah. in Ireland. They are the body responsible for managing vaccine procurement and distribution. And they have been promoting the HPV vaccine since 2010 to be given to girls uh, between uh, ages 12 and 13. HPV is a, is a virus infection that can lead to cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. It's sexually transmitted, so it's important to give it before you become sexually active. The aim of the HSE, as they're known, is to get over 80% of uh, the girls vaccinated. They reached that goal in 2015, 
coming up to 87%, which was very good news. But there is a campaign group called Regret in Ireland who has campaigned against this vaccine, which they claim causes seizures and uh, joint pains, which there is no evidence for at all. But this group has campaigned against the vaccine, and now the vaccination rates have fallen from 87% in 2015 to 50% by the end of 2016. This is really bad news. The HSE calculates that this will result in a thousand cases uh, of of girls needing invasive therapy per year. Mm. Uh, Mm. And among those, there will be at least 40 deaths. Oy, oy. This is really bad news. I know I've seen news about this from other countries as well. There's been in Sweden some some noise about it. Denmark especially has been very uh, prone to these uh, these claims that that the vaccine is very dangerous, and they they are struggling as well to keep vaccinations up. What's not mentioned in this article is that. Uh, lately, at least in Sweden, it's been said that also also boys should be vaccinated. Even though boys don't get cervical cancer, they help spreading the disease. So, so you should mm. ev- the shot should be for everybody before they reach a sexually active age. Really, yeah, absolutely. All right, so this is it for um, this week's um, news segment. And we've got uh, an interview for you today uh, with Leo Igwe, who is um, a speaker at the European Skeptics Congress in September. On every other episode, we usually interview a person representing an organization or a project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. In anticipation of the upcoming 17th European Skeptics Congress, We will interview speakers of this exciting event and try to help our audience familiarize themselves with their work prior to this international convention. This week, we talked to Liu Igwe, who is a skeptic and a Nigerian human rights advocate who has played leading roles in the Nigerian humanist movement, Atheist Alliance International and the Center for Inquiry, Nigeria. For many years, he represented the IHEU, the International Humanist and Ethical Union, at the African Commission on Human and People's Rights and generally in Western and Southern Africa. He specialized in campaigning against child witchcraft accusations and have researched this topic at the University of Bayreuth in Germany. Leo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Pontius, and uh, thank you so much, Elena, for giving me this opportunity to interact with you. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's an honor to have you here. Our pleasure. So, first of all, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your background and who you are. Well, um, I was born in southeastern Nigeria in a village. Yes, I grew up in a village. I spent my the first uh, 12, 15 years of my life in the village. And from there, I went to study at the seminary. So, I originally trained to be a priest. Mm-hmm. Um, then after the high school, I went to major seminary. Then I studied theology for, for three months, actually, because I couldn't take it. Um, after studying philosophy, uh, theology was just uh, too much for me in terms of um, critical thinking and reasoning. 
So I left the seminary training. Yeah. And uh, it was my experiences while I was there and while I was growing up that um, actually made me think that a critical approach to life, a movement that emphasizes on reason and critical thinking is of value to my society. And um, I felt that instead of spending my life um, promoting dogma and superstition, in this case, Catholic dogma and superstition, I felt like um, it was more meaningful for me to spend my life combating dogma and superstition. So I left the seminary, that was in 1994. And um, in 1996, I started, first of all, the humanist movement. But in the course of that humanist movement, I found out that the message was not really getting across. A lot of people, people want to question ideas, but they don't like people taking this categorical stand against religion. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I, I noticed it. So at a point, I was having the skeptic and the humanist side by side depending on the audience um, I was addressing. So uh, initially I started the humanist movement. At the point I had some kind of a skeptic um, meetings uh, here and there. But um, initially, after some time, it was uh, I was unable to keep the two going together. So I now merged them. So what I do now is that we have a humanist movement, but when we have meetings, we have this session on superstition and skepticism and reason. So th- that was how... Um, I transited from being trained as a priest to being a skeptical activist and humanist activist. And um, I, I worked briefly, like you noted in my bio, with the International Humanist and Ethical Union. And I was involved in uh, a lot of campaigns against uh, child witchcraft accusation and witchcraft accusation generally, then also ritual killing. Mm-hmm. So, and it was um, in the course of that that I now got the opportunity to come and do research um, at the University of Bayreuth in Germany. If we go back a little bit, you, you grew up, I assume, in a, in a family and, and a community where there was a lot of uh, very strict beliefs and a lot of superstition as well. Why do you think that you started to question all of that? That's not easy when you're a young person to go against your community. Yes, that is that is it, it is yeah it, it is not easy. It is also easy, and let me tell you why because. I wasn't, uh, uh, first of all, I did my primary school in the village. In the village means that you leave your house, you go to primary school, you come back. Then, but after that, I left for the seminary, which was another environment altogether. And in the seminary, they promote the Christian Catholic beliefs. And these beliefs question the traditional beliefs. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that the course of my training wasn't like, like you know, you, you had this kind of this people telling you the same thing always. But sometimes... You, you come across um, uh, people teaching something critical of the tradition. Like now, the Catholic Church was critical of the tradition. And sometimes you also try to question the Catholic Church. And the traditional people will be sometimes ridiculing the Catholic Church. And so I grew up in this environment, not strictly uh, that people believe the same thing per se. But um, yes, there was magic, there was superstition, but there was also spaces for questioning, even though it wasn't as pronounced as maybe as what you could see maybe when you have um, a skeptical society or a skeptical encounter. But what I'm saying there, that my training was such that I, it gave me a little space to question. And when I started questioning, I found out that whether it is Christianity or, or the traditional magic, it's all about superstition. It's all about hearsay. It's all about people making up things. It's all about people uh, peddling beliefs without evidence. 
And as I was um, advancing in my education, I felt, I increasingly felt that there was a need for um, a clear-cut categorical stand when it comes to superstition, whether it's traditional or Catholic. Hmm. Um, you have described three tests uh, that used to determine if a person practices a witchcraft. Could you please tell us about those tests, what they are to the listeners, to those who don't? As in how, how, okay, how, they, how to identify a witch, that's, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There are, um, in Ghana, there are, um, um, there are certain ways, if you're accused of witchcraft, people could identify the, if you're a witch. And um, one is called the chicken test. So what happens is that they have to uh, they they kill a chicken and um, and if the chicken dies, facing the sky, uh, it means that the person is innocent. But if the pers- if the chicken dies facing the ground, it means that the person is guilty. So mm. and this kind of text takes place at the shrines um, and shrines um, traditional worship centers, traditional religious centers where these priests conduct rituals and use that ritual to identify who is which or not. They also have um, what they call the broom texts. This time, the priest uses two brooms, and um, and he will just use it across the neck of uh, the accused person. And the belief there is that if the person is a witch, the two brooms will not separate. But if the person um, is not a witch, the, the two brooms will separate. And when I was there too, they told me about what they call the crocodile test. But I was told that that practice has stopped because there, I went to the river. There were no more crocodiles. They said that when people are accused, then that was some many, many years ago, they pushed them into the river and mm-hmm. the crocodile will now decide who is the witch. The one, the, 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 the one that is caught by the crocodile is identified to be the witch. These are some of the rituals they use, and but this is in the northern Ghana to identify and confirm who is a mm-hmm. witch or not. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's that's terrible, of course. Uh, but I was I was intrigued by the the Catholic beliefs uh, and these the superstitious beliefs. How do people get those beliefs to to mix in their daily life? Well, I think that it is something that it is better experience of something that people need to look at the situation, specific situation in particular, because the Catholic Church is introduced to people. It wasn't like people were, were given the opportunity to really choose and convert. Mm. People were coerced because the Catholic Church did not just come with beliefs. They came with hospitals. They came with schools. So yeah. if you are to go to these schools, you have to convert. You have to change your name. You have to uh, agree to what they believe in. If you, have to, if you go to these hospitals, these hospitals also have spaces where they preach to the patients or make you you try to believe what the hospital stands for religiously. And these hospitals, they also have nursing schools. And sometimes if you want to become a nurse, you have to want to go to these schools, you have to convert. Or even if you don't want to convert, they will make sure that you attend the Catholic rituals and Catholic, and you observe Catholic beliefs and all that. So people were somehow coerced. They had no choice but to accept these Catholic beliefs as a way of uh, getting profession, get, uh, advancing in ed- education, or getting a job, or sometimes accessing healthcare. So we have a situation where people have a mix of their traditional beliefs and also a mix of their Christian Catholic beliefs, as the case may be. Yeah, I understand. Africa quite often tends to be seen as a one country 
uh, country of Africa, by non-Africans. But um, are there beliefs in witchcraft similar across the continent, or do they vary? Um, well, you know, when they talk about believing witchcraft, sometimes they present it in such a way that it is one thing. I think that it is it is important we try to look at how do people explain their misfortune? How do people make sense of their suffering? This is how this notion of witchcraft comes in. Now, people have this belief that, yeah, if they have any, if, if they experience an unusual case of suffering, somebody is sick, they have tried to use what they call the herbal material means to cure the person. The person is not responding. Um, the sickness is not going away. They begin to suspect that it is not something extraordinary. Immediately, that thinking sets in. Mystical explanations, mystical sense of misfortune or illness, or it could be accident or death, sets in. And that's, this is where issues about uh, witchcraft, they come up. The, you see, the, the healthcare is not very robust. And, and you see, what we are looking at today as the modern healthcare is Western healthcare. It's introduced by Western countries, Catholic missionaries. We don't have this in all the places. Not all the people have access to healthcare. So even where you have the hospitals, there may not be drugs, there may not be doctors, there may not be, people might not be well-trained, the people might not even afford the, medic, the medicine. So what happens is that where people cannot access what we can call the medical health facilities, they rely on the traditional medical system. And within this traditional medical system, witchcraft accusation thrives. This is how witchcraft accusation survives today in spite of the presence or in spite of the fact that we have modern, in quote, medical facilities out there. Yeah. You have specially uh, spoken out against abuse of children in the name of witchcraft. What is the best way to, to fight that? Well, the, it is difficult to say what the best way is. The thing is that we just need to put at the front burner, we need to get the world to understand that this is going on. Children are vulnerable. Children are helpless. And they rely most often on however they are treated by their parents. So that if the parents are people who are prone to using the idiom of witchcraft to make sense of illness, when the children fall ill and the, children, and the parents cannot access adequate medical care for them, they are likely to accuse these children. And the children don't even know that they are being accused. That's a challenge. Yeah. So that is why everything has to be done to highlight this problem. Because these children sometimes are affected, they're traumatized, some, some are killed. I mean, I, I witnessed a situation where a, a, a woman took two of the children to a spiritualist, and the spiritualist gave some concoction to one of the kids, and the, that kid was accused of being evil or being a witch, and that one died right there. Oh, yeah. so the child died at that place, and a kind of a, a brother or a sister to the, to, the, to the child now said, ah, mommy, ah, my brother is dead or my sister is dead. He said, oh, don't worry. I will, I will give back to another one for you. So <laughs> I found it traumatizing, you know, because um, we have a situation where parents have this kind of um, power over their, over their children and they're, um, they're not hold, held to account. 
Yes, whatever happens to the children and people just forget it and it becomes business as usual. Because in many of these places, there are no adequate checks and balances in terms of trying to monitor what happens to children to know exactly when parents kill their children. <laughs> that is, a, yeah. that is a, the problem. Yes. Yeah. What I'm saying there is that we don't have those checks. So because we don't have those checks, it's important we continue to highlight this problem because it is far more a huge problem than we think because there's a wall of silence. That's number one. There's also inaccessibility. And sometimes when you ask questions, when it comes, people ask you, it's not your business. So a lot is going on behind this wall of silence. And we have to do as much as we can to bring this wall of silence and bring the issue to the front burner. Uh, do you get any funding at all for the vo- work you do in fighting the witchcraft in Africa at all? Well, you know, the issue of funding can be very tricky. Number one is that funding for what? The, the problem is huge, I must mm-hmm. tell you. Mm-hmm. We have public enlightenment. I mean, I did it in one state. You go from state to state. But, you know, it is not something just one out, just one campaign is going to solve. You need to be there. You need to monitor. So it is really a challenge because sometimes you get cases. You, need, you, not, you have to rescue the child. Now you have to take the child to a care, child care center. Child care centers will tell you you need to deposit money so that they could use to take care of the child and all that. So sometimes you take the child. I took a child to a government welfare center and they interviewed the child and a government officer there told me, look, this child has confessed to be a witch. So what do we do? We can't keep this child where we keep other children. So it is sometimes overwhelming, I must tell you. Uh, you know, there were moments I, I got overwhelmed. The thing is that we need a kind of an institutional support. Because sometimes you get maybe a few thousand euros to go and do something, then it ends there. You go back home. So when I mean institutional support, is like we, make, we get this thing either mainstreaming in our partnership, either with universities, mm-hmm. so that it becomes something that people get reminded time and time and again. So, and people will come for a call. There'll be some kind of training. Police officers will be trained because they believe in this witchcraft. So sometimes it's really difficult to uh, sustain the campaign because the funding comes maybe for a a year or for two years. Mm -hmm. And after that, there's no funding again. Something you have pushed away to a point, it will roll back (laughs) again and and it, it becomes business as usual. So, yeah. Funding is a challenge, but what I'm saying is that there's a need for us to steal whatever means, whatever platform we have. We use it to keep sending out the same message and keep mobilizing, keep conscientizing, and keep finding a way to make people to understand that this belief is mistaken, this belief is harming, and we need to do everything we can to make it history in the region. Mm. Sure. Sure. I mean, yeah, it, it is a huge problem. But um, I guess if there isn't um, sort of a non-for-profit setup that's f- solely focusing on just, you know, fighting the witchcraft, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, we have some humanist groups who are doing mm. some work. But of course, they do some campaign a little while, then they go back or they, yeah. the thing stops. We also have um, uh, witchcraft, human rights. Uh, information network is um is based in the uk they are also doing some work unicef is also doing some work yeah but like i said it's huge yeah mm. yeah sure yeah. yeah it's 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 about ed- educating the whole yes populations like yes. and, again, and again also we as you are educating some people are, are doing the counter education the churches are just making mm, sure. um a counteracting what we are doing yeah even the schools 
even some of the books they use in the schools. Some mm. of them are they, 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 they come up with witchcraft narratives and they reinforce these beliefs. So as we are trying to uh, counter the belief, there are also people who are trying to reinforce it either through what they are doing, what they are preaching, or the kind of narratives they are encouraging in the classrooms. Yeah, there, there, there must also be a, a lot of risk in doing what you're doing. And I know you've had some famous or infamous uh, run-in with the Liberty Gospel Church. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit of who they are and, and what, what they have done? Yeah, well, Liberty Gospel Church is based in Calabar uh, in southern Nigeria, and the owner of the church claims to be an ex-witch. An ex-witch? Yeah, okay. she claimed to be. She was a witch, then she now got born again, and uh, she now has. She now claims to have the power to deliver, to identify those who are witches and deliver them. So oh, she she moved from being a witch to an ex-witch to a witch hunter. Huh. And so when I was, what I did was like, I just felt that if we really want to address this, we have to go to the headquarters of the church to provide a counter-narrative, to provide a counter-campaign, to challenge the church, challenge her, challenge the people, because she just poisoned the whole environment uh, with witchcraft narratives. If you are having a problem in your business, it's witchcraft. If your child is crying in yeah. the night, it's witchcraft. If your child is preferring, it's witchcraft. And she made people to see every problem they were facing through the lens of witchcraft. And I felt that she needed a counter Person, she. I mean, let me use that word. The witches in that community needed an advocate, and I felt I could be that advocate. I could speak for them, and I could make people to understand that they, the people that are calling witches, we are not witches. So, she was angry because we, the campaign we wanted to, we, we staged there was to counter what she was doing, and she mobilized her church members, and they invaded the venue of the conference. They beat me up, and they took away my things. They now charge me to court for violating their right to believe in witchcraft. Right. But oh um, they eventually lost. So she's been doing all sorts of things to, of course, blackmail, yeah. say a lot of disparaging stuff about the campaign and what we're doing. But um, yes, the campaign is more than uh, more than whatever she's doing. It is all about the children, their safety, and um, we have we have been doing whatever we can to keep our campaign going and keep doing whatever we can in Calabar and other places to make sure that um, we have people who could speak for those who are accused. Whenever we get the news, we try to move in, we try to inform, we try to draw attention of the world. And that's exactly what we've been doing. It's quite scary stuff. I still can't believe that we're having this conversation in the 21st century. Your, your talk at the Congress will be called Robber, Goat, Bird Woman and Cat Woman, How Religion is Hampering Scientific Thinking in Africa. Yes. Um, what can we expect from your talk? You know, don't, don't obviously tell, tell us too much, but just in uh, highlights. Well, what, what we can expect is that I, I'm, I'm aware that within the skeptical environment, people don't talk so much about religion. And that is one thing I find very exciting about uh, the upcoming Skeptic Congress. Yes, I was I was a bit surprised that there was this religion mentioned there because I know that my uh, association with skeptic movement sometimes they say ah no we are interested in superstition we are interested of course in magic but we are not interested in religion and I asked myself what is the difference what is the difference <laughs> that's very true I mean I mean I mean I, I, you know I, sometimes I said okay maybe I'm not an English person I don't understand this but right there. In my own community, there is no difference between those who are involved in magic and those who are involved in religion and, and all that. 
And you know what? What we are calling the witch doctors today are pastors. Yeah. They are clerics. They are religious experts. They are, they, they are religious uh, personalities. So when, they, when, when sometimes I meet some skeptics, they tell me, oh, we are not interested in religion. We are interested in magic and superstition. We are interested in asking for evidence. I said, is there any evidence for religious claims? Where? where, where? The problem we have with religion is the problem we have with magic is the problem we have with superstition. So let me say, I was very excited when I found out that the religion was one of the themes that we're going to consider. Yes, we will have to subject religious claims to all, just like every other claim, like magic, paranormal claims. So what happens is in Nigeria is that Religion is now helping to, to reinforce magical beliefs. Yes. And if there's this kind of, it has morphed. The, both religious belief and magical beliefs, there are no difference. For instance, that like, like the example I gave, we, we have situations where people believe that, yeah, you, you, people can turn to animals. Yeah. And, and religiously, you can call that miracle. You can call that mystical act. So this time around, we, we've seen those claims. People now try to treat those claims as, um, try to legitimize them because these claims are religious claims. Hmm. And, and because of religious belief, people are not ready to question these claims. And when, sometimes when you want to question them and challenge them, they will ask you, oh, are you a Christian? Are you a Muslim? Do you believe in God? And immediately they get you down this question, either that if you really are religious, why should you question this belief? In fact, religion is hampering our, our fight and our attempt to combat what we can call superstition. Yeah, I'm still struggling with the, the difference between religion and superstition. But yeah. some of these claims, we, can't, we, we are finding it difficult to fight them because people try to say, yeah, why should you fight this? After all, it is religion. Yes, and, and you know, there is this creeping um, kind of um, trend that you don't criticize religious beliefs. Yeah, but you can criticize superstition. You yeah. can criticize witchcraft. Yeah. Now, the Bible has provisions for witchcraft. Exodus 22, 18 says, suffer not a witch to live. Yeah. So, so, so with this kind of reinforcement, it is difficult for us to really combat yeah. witchcraft beliefs, magical beliefs, without challenging religious claims. Yeah, I, I do believe that we, we very often give uh, religion a free card, sort of. And, That's and right, we don't, yeah. we don't yeah. challenge it the same way that we do other superstitions. And I, I fully agree. It's, it's the same thing. And it's... A religion is magical thinking. Yes. It's, it's a form of... Mm, yeah. So if we go back to the, the situation with, with witchcraft in Africa... Are you optimistic about combating witchcraft? or, or do you, how, It seems like a huge journey we have in front of us. Am I optimistic? Mm. Yes, you see, optimism... You know, you know, if I'm to base my optimism on my own power, yeah, the, the fact there is that I have to provide structures that will make the belief fizzle out. Okay. But the structures that will make the belief feasible are not things I can just provide. And by going to a community to tell them, okay, stop believing in witchcraft and you go home. When, people, when, they are, when their children are sick, what will I do? Hmm. When their parents are sick, what will I do? They don't have hospitals. But where I did my research, hospitals are sometimes 40 minutes drive or sometimes one hour drive from the, from the community. The closest person is a shrine priest. 
is the one that is the one that, that that may be consulted in the night. So the question there is that if we have to get rid of witchcraft, we have to replace the structures that make witchcraft possible. There are structures. In, in other words, evidence-based medicine must be available and accessible. We cannot use corporateness to market medicine. And medicine is now all about the people who can afford it. Yeah. And we now expect witchcraft to go away in a situation where people are so poor they cannot afford this medicine. Wow. If, if, if evidence-based medicine is not available, people will have to find a way to make sense of their illness and misfortune. Yeah. So I'm not supporting it. What I'm saying is that if it is in my power, I will say, look, the people, the pharmaceutical companies, the governments who are into negotiating packs with companies, if you don't make these medical facilities, medical information, it's not even medical information. I'm talking about the hardware. I'm talking about the medicine itself. If you don't make that accessible to the people, people will find a way to make sense of their illness or the misfortune they suffer. Sometimes they need a hospital where they, somebody could sit them down and explain to them and said, oh yeah, this is what happened. This illness did this way and it happened this way. And that can help people make sense of, 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 of the death of people in the family. Mm. But nobody is there. Nobody provides them this, in quote, evidence-based information on whatever misfortune they experience. So they have to now find a way to spiritualize it. And again, we have spiritualists in these communities who are operating. So mm. it is very complicated. It's not just something I can say I'm optimistic. Yeah. I'm optimistic yeah. if the corporate, let's say the corporate pharmaceutical companies can make medical facilities available, medical uh, medicines, medical treatment available and affordable to poor people in the communities. Many of them will not, will are likely to move away from using witchcraft narratives. But if they don't, well, what I could do, I would still go there and say, oh, stop believing in witchcraft. And after that, I'll go back and they will continue with their belief. Yeah. So it is, um, how do I say, it is a cautious optimism. That's what I call it. It is it's an, it's an optimism that I think might materialize, but I would need a cooperation, not only of governments in Africa, but also governments in the West, yeah. who, whose pharmaceutical companies are driven by profit. Mm-hmm. And you are making profit from people who cannot even afford the basic, who are living less than $1 a day. So what do you want them to do? They spiritualize things. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense. I mean, unless we provide a, 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 an alternative to witchcraft, it will not go away. That's what you're saying. Yes. Because yeah. it's serving a function. It's filling a gap. It's a gap-filling measure for people who cannot afford, afford or access evidence-based information or evidence-based medical support or facility. And it's a very interesting point of view because I, I, for example, can't even imagine not, you know, being being brought up in Europe, not having the the access and not knowing that certain medicines work certain ways, and then the the body reacts in certain way. But if you don't have that education and you don't have that that exposure, then of course, that's uh, you know, witchcraft becomes your next best thing because it's available, easy down the road. You know, the priest will tell you whatever you need to know or whatever you want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people go and find out more about the, the work you do, follow the work you do, and also if they want to get involved and help uh in any way with with your quest in combating the witchcraft, what what can they do? Well, right now I'm just rounding up uh, a program. I just rounded up a program at the university in um, in Bayreuth um and um um but I have a network 
I mentioned the um, Witchcraft uh, Human Rights Information Network. Uh, that one is based in the UK. Mm-hmm. I think the International Human and Ethical Union, also based in the UK, they're doing some work, but I think that more if their emphasis is more on, um, um, of course, on humanism and the and development of humanist groups. But there is also this group, the Humanist Service Corps. So they are actually doing a fantastic job in the north of Ghana, trying to help the reintegration of alleged witches. And one can also join as a volunteer and travel to Ghana to help in the reintegration process. I don't really, for now, have my own organization or institute per se, but I collaborate with many organizations that are involved. And um, I hope maybe in the, the coming years, I may have to put in place an organization of my own. Yeah. 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 So, so if you if you can just send us some of those links or links to some of those organizations or places you could go, we'd be more than happy to share that in the show notes to this episode. I'll yeah. do that. And just a quick question about Twitter and Facebook. Are you on either or both? Yes, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, but I'm not very active on Twitter because the Facebook one is really, really taking a lot of my time. So, okay. yeah, but I'm on, I'm, I'm, I'm on both. Yes, I'm on board, but more on Facebook, okay. uh, occasionally on Twitter. All right. Very good. And it's been really fascinating. So I'm really looking forward to meeting you in Poland because we will be there. Jelena, myself and Andras, we will all be there. And I, we hope that uh, as many as of our listeners as possible will be there as well to meet you in person and uh, and, and have further discussions and to listen to your talk, of course. Okay. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Yep. Speak to you later. Thank you. Yes. Take care. Bye. 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 Hello, dear skeptical friends. This is Claire Kleinberg, co-organizer of the European Skeptics Congress 2017. This year, the Congress will be held in Wrocław, Poland on September 22nd to 24th, and it is my absolute pleasure to invite you to attend. Come and listen to talks by James Randi, Susan Gerbic, Mark Linnis, Susan Blackmore, Scott Lilienfeld, and others. Discuss topics like science and religion, pseudoscience and media, paranormal investigation, and more. To buy a ticket and to get more information about the Congress, go to euroskepticscon.org or find us on Facebook. See you there! It never ends. A friend starts talking about his new Reiki master, and someone else just posted about another all-natural cancer cure that they don't want you to know about. As skeptics, we dedicate a lot of time trying to protect those around us, but there's a way that you can reach millions. Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia is a group that is working to keep the best skeptical information at everyone's fingertips in all languages. Join us. Training is self-paced and fun, and we have our very own super-secret Facebook group. You will be educating the world in your sleep. To find out more, email us at gsowteam at gmail.com. Gorilla Skepticism. The time is now. Music by binsound.com. Our next one up is uh, Really Wrong with Pontus. Actually, this week, I don't want to talk about Really Wrong because that's very negative and sometimes I want to lift up somebody who's doing something really good. So, so this is a Really Right segment. Yay, for once. I like Really yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. 
So as we release this episode, uh, the Edinburgh Fringe has just started. And the Edinburgh Skeptics have started delivering their fantastic 23 nights in a row streak uh, with one skeptic on the fringe talk every day. I think this is really worth highlighting. They will be in the Banshee Labyrinth in Edinburgh and you can now go every night for an hour of interesting talks ranging from uh, space exploration, ghosts, vampires, cancer research, homeopathy, etc., etc. I just wanted to give a great shout-out to Mark Pentler, Sean Slater and the others in, in Edinburgh for, for organizing these fantastic three weeks uh, during the Fringe. Being a Skeptics in the Pub organizer myself... I absolutely have the greatest respect for how much time and effort it takes to organize only, you know, one Skeptics in the Pub event per month, let alone 23 for 23 days in a row. Amazing. Yeah, they're really doing a fantastic job and they're an example of the skeptical movement that we maybe don't hear about so often. The people working in the background, behind the scenes putting in enormous amounts of hours of work to, to arrange things for the rest of us to enjoy. So if you're anywhere near Edinburgh uh, over the ne next few weeks, please go. Uh, but if, you, if you're not, you can still enjoy it uh, by listening to their podcast, which is called the Edinburgh Skeptics Podcast, which just by coincidence you, uh, happens to have the same initials as we have the ESP uh, so so go to the Edinburgh Skeptics podcast if you can't attend and and listen to the to the talks because they record I think every one of them and they release it over the next coming months uh, it's it's really great well done guys yeah very impressive indeed Mm -hmm. So for working their butts off very much in the background, without a lot of uh, recognition, the Edinburgh Skeptics gets today's prize for being really right. Great stuff. Well, if I'm not mistaken, that's it for, for today. Mm -hmm. All that is left for me to do is to finish this episode with a quote. And I have a quote today from René Descartes, who was a French philosopher, mathematician, and scientist. Um, and he said, In order to seek truth, it is necessary once in the course of our life to doubt as far as possible of all things. So there mm. we go. Right. Doubt is good. Healthy, yeah. Healthy dose of don't, doubt. Don't take my word for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also, well, you can Google. Google can be a good start, but don't just... Click on an article and read the headline. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's it for today. We'll um, be back next week with an interview. And hopefully, um, Andres will be back with us by then. But for now, thanks so much, uh, Pontus, uh, for your contribution. It's been a pleasure, as always. Thanks. Thank you, Elena. Bye-bye. Bye, all. Bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, 
please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Here goes nothing. I'm editing on the run here, Jelena. <laughs> you could just change the last yeah, sentence. You, yeah, but it should fit together with a previous sentence. Uh, René Descartes, who was... Hang on, I had him open. <laughs> <laughs> you have him open? He's been dead for a while, so that's I know, okay. Yeah, so that he won't feel anything.